And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And this is really a first for us. We're live on location in Brooklyn in a, uh, of a place that's of very historical significance, and we are at the old stone house in uh, Washington Park looking out on basically where home plate was for the first incarnation of the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. And it's more than just baseball history that we're here to discuss. So without further ado, let me bring on the executive director of the old stone house in Washington Park. That is Kim Mayer. Hi, Kim. How are you? Thanks for inviting me to join you. Of course. This is uh, only like the fourth of 158 episodes. This is the 158th episode, excuse me, that I've actually been in person with the uh, the guests, so thank you for adding to that. I'm glad we can do this. It's been a long couple of years. Yes, it has, exactly. Um, uh, for those, we're probably, you know, those still concerned, we're probably six feet apart right now, I believe, so it's, it's still, we're following the guidelines one way or another. Uh, but this, it's, it's the first time that I've been in this building, and uh, you gave me the mini tour downstairs for the uh, the overall history of the, uh, the stone house. And of course, we're in the space that uh, features contemporary art. So um, there's a lot to cover. So just give us a, a, an overview of where we exactly are. Sure. So we are on Lenape land, like most of New York. Uh, and the Dutch arrived in the mid-17th century. And the uh, agricultural cultivation that had gone for a thousand years was very attractive to them. So by the uh, mid-17th century, the Dutch had pushed the Lenape out of Brooklyn and had established a very intense agricultural community. It was actually the largest slaveholding community in the North by the time of the Revolutionary War. And in August of 1776, uh, the British had arrived in New York Harbor and they were about to uh, quell the rebellion in five days was their hope. <laughs> but uh, it didn't quite work out that way. So the Battle of Brooklyn really took place throughout Southwest Brooklyn, and uh, the fighting culminated around the Beck family farm, which was the original Old Stone House. Right. Um, which is about 100 yards from where we are right now. Right, and you told me that's basically about where the swing set is. And you can kind of see that it's <laughs> the land, obviously they've flattened a little bit, but it does. it's part of that last slope of uh, Third Street. Yes, so if you can imagine this landscape about 15 feet lower than we are now, and a building that looks very much like today's building, but turned uh, 90 degrees, the Dutch were sustainable, even then, they loved a good southern exposure, and the Gowans Creek was dammed by the Becks and their neighbors to create an oyster bed, uh, and they also used it to get to market. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, it's a very, you know, we're tucked in between now uh, a lot of apartment buildings and some townhouses. It, it's a very, very beautiful, historically protected as well, uh, neighborhood in uh, Brooklyn, and that's Prospect, uh, excuse me, Park Slope, which is the slope to the Prospect Park. Um, and that must have been an interesting place to watch a ball game uh, back in the day. These pla- I mean, these buildings are probably only 10 years older than the ballpark and when the Dodgers first took uh, place, when, when the Dodgers first uh, played ball here? I think that's true. Uh, you know, at a certain point, the Cordelia family that bought the farm from the Beck family sold out to Edwin Litchfield, who was the original developer of this center section of Park Slope. And so by, you know, the Civil War era, 
uh, the space was being used for open recreation. And uh, Gowanus was developing as an industrial site, and the tenement buildings that you now see along 3rd Avenue and even along 5th Avenue are not much older than the ballpark. And what you don't see here, and what really made that ballpark so attractive, was the elevated train that ran along 5th Avenue and had a stop right at 3rd Street that opened in 1883, just in time for the ballgame. And you, you did show me a photo uh, just with the stone house in the back of, of the, the ballpark, and I didn't necessarily notice was the it was there at the time? You can't see the elevated in that particular okay. shot, but yes, it was there. And uh, the house, when it became part of the ballpark complex, was uh, first used as a ladies' restroom, and then it was used as the changing room, and then a clubhouse, and uh, in the winter for a gentleman's clubhouse when they had skating on ice and ice skating on Washington Pond. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, you know, getting the baseball part out of the way, the thing about, the thing about it for me is that we talk about baseball so much on this podcast that I want to talk about something else. And, of course, the New York Mets, uh, go figure, just had to give me an extra inning game right now for a game that was originally not supposed to be today but got pushed because of uh, the rain last night. So it's, just, it, it's funny to have uh, current New York National League baseball as we somewhat talk about old-school National League baseball. Wasn't there actually a point where the Mets and the Dodgers merged in the late 19th century? I believe that is the case, the original New York Metropolitans of the uh, American Association. And somebody who uh, has been on the podcast a lot, uh, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LeColon, who I believe you have met before, yeah. he uh, has covered the New York Metropolitans much more than I have, and he'd be able to tell us all about it, but unfortunately he could not be here today. Um, so let's go even further back. Let's get a, a little bit uh, more uh, invested in the Lenape part. Sure. Uh, so the Lenape, um, you know, this was part of their hunting grounds. The nearest town was called Marekowicz. It was about a mile north of where we are now, um, kind of near where Hoyton Bond is now. And uh, at the at the time of Keith's War, you know, there was a, a great deal of tumult between the Lenape and the Dutch and the, uh, the Dutch pigs breaking into the Lenape fields and it really caused a, a huge outbreak um, that eventually led to a treaty where the Lenape were forced to sell their land. And so this was all done by 1643, very early wow. in the history of New York. And at this point, um you know, I'm not sure how much of an expert you are on what the landscape was, uh, but but how what 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 if we were looking out at you know 1643, would we be seeing? Well, it would have been quite different than today, obviously. And if you're familiar um, with Eric Sanderson's Manhattan Project, you know, very heavily wooded. Uh, the shoreline was not too far from here. The Gowanus was a creek. It was uh, filled with oysters and other freshwater fish. Uh, the Lenape were cultivating corn. Uh, they were using wampum for trade. Uh, they were trading with uh, other tribes, you know, Algonquin, Habitone in the north, uh, Shinnecock out east. So there was quite an active community at the time and a very thriving uh, native culture that continues to this day. Uh, 
you know, there the Lenape were eventually removed to Oklahoma, but the diaspora in New York, New York City, actually is one of the largest Native communities in the United States. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And, I did not uh, Yep, and we um, actually work with a number of, had the chance to exhibit a number of contemporary Native artists, um, including an artist named Jeremy Dennis, who's a wonderful photographer whose project is called On This Site, that looks at uh, sacred Shinnecock sites throughout Long Island and what they've become over the years. So, you know, forgive me for my ignorance in terms of, of the fact that they went out to Oklahoma, but in the initial selling of the land, which way did they go? Staten Island. Okay. And then north. There you go. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're all aware of the broken treaties that occurred over time right. and that caused, you know, a further push left short over the years. Right. Exactly. Jeez. Uh, and, and that's just the ugly part of our history that as we lead to, I mean, I guess you could say that the, the uh, onset of the British, you know, they didn't do it, but they were a part of it. <laughs> they were a part of it. Part of it the whole time before stealing the land from the Dutch. Yeah, um, I think you know what's interesting about all of this Revolutionary War to baseball is that the mythology of America is right. huge, and so you know the reality is almost so much more interesting than the fiction. But the fiction exists, and that's what sort of creates this uh, you know national persona that we right. live with in America. Yeah, it's it's a lot to ungrapple. Um, and so at, at what point did the British uh, come in here? Uh, at what point was this really British land? So, you know, the British were in New York early on, uh, you know, late 17th century, uh, but the issues really arose as they started to uh, create economic issues uh, for American tradesmen, and uh, Boston was really the the fomenting of the revolution. And, you know, I think growing up in Massachusetts, you know, the Revolutionary War was all about Massachusetts, but that all happened in 1775. So it was, uh, you know, the Battle of Bunker Hill, and, and, um, and once that was over, the, the British came to New York because they knew that they were setting out for what was going to be a relatively long engagement, even though they hoped to end it in New York fairly quickly, uh, but New York was going to be their breadbasket. It was the mid-Atlantic, so they could go in either direction. And by the summer of 1776, they had landed on Staten Island. They came in with 400 ships of the line. There were so many uh, ships, it looked like all of London was afloat. That was right. one of the quotes. So really, um, this amazing idea that in the Narrows, where the Verrazano Bridge is now, which is completely full of these incredible huge battleships, and it was the largest naval landing until B-Day. Wow. So. And, and because, I mean, they, they hoped that this would basically squash any rebellion. However, the, the fact, you know, just on my, my very uh, basis foundation of, of the understanding of it, it ended up being able to retreat the way that the American Army did, uh, the Continental Army. Uh, they were able to save enough people uh, just basically, we have to give up New York just to win the entire war. Yes. Well, New York was not beloved. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and maybe still isn't. Right, right. By many people. But uh, during the Battle of Brooklyn on August 27, 1776, there was quite a bit of confusion because the Americans didn't know where the British were going to land. They 
were looking at the weather patterns, which were preventing the, the British from sailing up the East River, which is what everyone was expecting. George uh, Washington was hosting a court martial uh, in lower Manhattan on the morning of the 27th, and he had troops positioned in Brooklyn, uh, but there were only about 7,000 of them, and the British had about 30,000 troops, so heavily outnumbered and very lightly guarded positions. So the British had really good intelligence, and they had this, this come up with this pincer maneuver that was basically going to send troops uh, from you know, Gravesend around to Bedford, and then up along the Gwantz Road, and the house became the culminating part of that battle really because it was at the crux of that pincer maneuver. But William Alexander, who was known as Lord Sterling, uh, because he had lobbied for many years to be recognized as the, uh, the, um, the, the heir of the, the Earl of Sterling, and he was laughed out of Parliament, which is why he ended up fighting for Washington, realized that the British had come up with this maneuver and they were going to be completely closed off and they were going to have to surrender. So he got the Maryland and Delaware troops, who were really quite well trained, uh, unlike many of the other militia, to attack the British here around the house and leave this escape route open. And so it allowed the Pennsylvania Regiment, who were up in what's now Prospect Park, uh, and the Connecticut Regiments that were over in what's now Greenwood Cemetery, to get across the Gowanus and get behind the battle lines at Brooklyn Heights. And then the British stopped. They didn't keep going. On August 27th, they rested on the 28th. And in that time, Washington's command was like, you got to get going. Right. You have to get out of here. And so they gathered every boat that they could find. And uh, with really the assistance of the Marblehead Mariners, a, a regiment of sailors that had been drafted into the infantry, uh, those Marblehead sailors gathered every boat they could find. And they ended up ferrying the American army across the East River the night of August 29th very foggy and hailing, and they had their oars muffled, and it was, it was a, the great escape. Nobody could believe it. The British were completely astounded, and it allowed the American army to retreat up the west side of Manhattan and really escape this initial engagement that was supposed to put an end to this rebellion at the outset of war. Uh, it's just, and I always know that I, I don't know enough about the way it all happened, and it sounds to me like uh, crossing the Delaware ended up being the more romanticized crossing uh, than the crossing of the East River. I guess maybe it has a better ring to it. I don't know. Well, I think we all think of that great, um, you know, that great portrait right. of Washington crossing the Delaware. Well, you know, that body of water is pretty small. Right, right. The exactly. River. Um, but I think it's also this idea of loss and, and American unwillingness to talk about loss in battles and even when we run our education programs here at the house, you know, kids are really indoctrinated to this idea of, of uh, American might. And so we'll go through the entire conversation about the battle and what happened, and then we'll say, who won? And the kids are like, oh, right, right. But, you know, I think there's also a lot of value in a conversation about resilience right. and how you go on to fight even in great adversity. And I think that's the value of the Battle of Brooklyn. It was a essentially a six-hour battle, and, um, but it changed the outset of the Revolutionary War, and New York went on to be occupied until 1783, but it was the beginning of Washington's understanding of leadership and command and how his command came together. Oh, that's amazing. And, and also the idea on, you know, the, count, the contrast to that with the British Army was hubris. 
that they felt as if, well, all right, we, I mean, so I'm guessing this was like, you know, we used to the 27th and into the 28th, that's when they, and during that evening, they were able to, to uh, whisk, whisk them away to Manhattan. Um, yeah, they thought that they could just rest up and, and, you know, it's just like, oh, it's, it's okay. I don't want to do the accent, but, but, oh, it's okay. We'll get them tomorrow, you know, and that just ended up being like, like their eventual folly, even if it took basically another, uh, you know, 9-11 years, more or less. Well, there are a whole uh, host of other conversations about um, the Howe brothers and, you know, the support for America in, Great, in, in Britain, um, because it was really a cousin's war. They were fighting against family members. Right. And you look at this stretch of history and the revolution, you know, was... Um, you know, really, the civil war is more like a revolution, and the revolution right. is more like a civil war. Right. Families that's, that's fighting against each other, but they're so intertwined. Well, you you see the the line basically stretching all the way back to the Revolutionary War of the divide in this country mm-hmm. in many ways. Yes, starting today, moving backwards, right. we're still right. arguing about the same things. Right. Then in discussion, you know, since the you know, since we were able to get the Declaration of Independence on paper, and I wonder sometimes if that's something that would actually be able to be accomplished today. Right. Because it's a great uh, act of compromise. Right. And and that's, I guess, a whole other podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> to compromising. <laughs> um, so just remind me again, uh, it was the Cortelio house. It was part of the farm. When was it first assembled? When was it first put together? So it was originally built in 1699. Okay. And when you look at this building, it's quite similar to that original farmhouse. Uh, if you look at it from the, the sort of north end, it looks like an Amsterdam townhouse, long and narrow, uh, and has this great uh, kind of sharp tooth brick patterning along the eaves. And uh, 1699 in iron numbers, which are essentially the roof tie rods. And this is a very traditional Dutch building element where you would put the year of your house on the, the uh the roof ties and oh yeah should mark the original building of the house. Yeah, we, we do it at the cornerstone more or less. Yeah. Something like that now. Exactly. Exactly. And um, you know, it's a very active Dutch farm and at the time of the revolution, uh there were three generations of Beck family members living here. Um five enslaved people that we know of uh, through the Beck family will. And then um, during the revolution, during the occupation, it was sold to the Cortelier family. And then they had a number of generations that owned the house but discontinued farming the land. So, you know, we, we talked before, uh, and we'll, we'll get a, a bit more thoroughly into the actual uh, assemblage of parkland, but... Um, it basically was it really like the baseball stadium in many ways that stopped this from being developed? Hmm, that's an interesting question. So the original farm went from what's now First Street to Sixth Street, and then all the way up to Prospect Park. Okay. And you know, to the, as part of the Guans Creek, and then Litchfield bought the nine acres at the center of the slope, and started to develop this as a recreation site around the house. I think just. There was a lot of um, land transfer at that time in the mid-19th century that was that coincided with the development of the Gowanus Canal. 
some things never change. Right. And uh, and then, you know, they hit upon the idea of the ball field, because uh, Charles Byrne was really looking for a place where he could build this fantastic park of his, and this just happened to be a good site uh, for him to take over. And maybe it was, you know, the ball field that kept it from being developed. Um, it went on to be an open site for many years, and then I think when Robert Moses had it in his in his eye, there was um, a conversation between Brooklyn Polytechnic because they wanted to have it for a campus, and Moses wanted to have it for recreation land. It's so interesting the way all these forks in the road go, because we could still be. I mean, I I don't know at this point if we're talking about home plate over there, how you would incorporate the house. I mean, I don't know how, so how many feet from the hypothetical home plate? I'm pretty sure this would be in the outfield. Well, yeah, it would be in the outfield. Um, it, it would have been moved somewhere else. Maybe, right. yeah. Um, the original house would have been closer to third and fifth. Home plate would have been closer to fifth and fifth. And I guess today would be maybe just um, beyond third base. And now I'm, I'm spacing on because obviously uh, the final Washington Park yeah. before Evans Field was over where Con Edison is now. Yes, diagonally across from us. So right. um, along between 4th and 3rd Avenues and 3rd and 1st Streets. And so when you're on 3rd Avenue and you get to about where 2nd Street would pick up, you'll see that piece of the, probably the 1914 um, right. park. Right, and that was uh, the tip tops, of course. Yes. Um, just thinking about it, I mean, uh, I... Technically, yeah, there could have been a ballpark within the confines of here. It would have been, I mean, it would have been very tight, but that's, that's the way these ballparks used to be built. It's just right smack in the middle of the neighborhood. Do you think that Park Slope, do you think that that just was a, would have been a little too much if you think about the way the game had developed? Obviously, you know, uh, you said you're no baseball expert, of course, <laughs> but I'm sure you know a little bit about the history of Evans and the way it was just tucked into this Crown Heights Flatbush neighborhood. Yeah, I think, well, there's more room than you would expect because this whole area was open all the way to 4th Avenue, so it would have encompassed the entire yeah. city block uh, east-west and then two blocks north-south, so it was quite substantial. I mean, really, the dismay of so many people is that it's really impossible for anybody but, like, an eight-year-old to play ball in the field oh, now. Oh, right, right. You know, they're always hitting it over the, over the roof of the well, house. Yeah, just, just think about it as, you know, it's great softball games yes, for, exactly. for, you know, uh, whoever you're working with or whoever you're assembling with one way or another, friends and, and whatnot. But in the time of Washington Park, you know, the, you know, the, the shout was to hit it into the Bologna. Right, so right. We weren't you know, still major hitters even at that point. I mean, and it's uh, now raining a little bit. It's been a weird, weird weather week, that's for sure. And I also want to say thank you, Matt, for picking this game up, even though you went into extra innings. I see that uh, they won five to four. I'm trying to see uh, how that exactly happened, but oh, it looks like oh my man, Francisco Lindor. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a little bit of a tangent. Um, so let let us uh, loop back around. We're going to press the reset button here. This is the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We're here with Executive Director Kim Mayer of Old Stone, the Old Stone House, and Washington Park. And I'd love to get your own personal Brooklyn history. Sure, I am. Um 
grew up in Boston, and you know the existential crisis that all Red Sox fans suffered for you know 86 years with the curse of Gambino. But uh, my favorite memories of of growing up actually were sitting like on the floor while my dad was watching the watching the floor, listening to the ball game when I was growing up, and that was always a great memory. And that is like the complete breadth of my knowledge of baseball, <laughs> um, except for you know Tom Gilbert such a great baseball historian, and uh, David Beats great uh, book on ballparks.com, and John Thorne's really great book on baseball in the Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, it's a good book. Yeah, very good book. And, uh, We've had John on the podcast before, okay. a long time ago, but just reminding me i got to get back in touch with yeah. him. Yeah. We both went to camp at, at the same camp, by the way. Oh, did you really yeah. care? <laughs> Tranquility Camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, just in a farm way up in Earlton. And I and I think that kids still go there today. Kids do. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it. Oh, well, Park Slope go there. I think that's (laughs) remarkable. Uh, It's just a small a small tri-state is what I like to say because most of the uh, the kids there are all from the tri-state except for a few Floridians that occasionally come in there. Uh, uh, Randomly, I'm seeing that uh, the map we see up there is that um, both the Gowanus Creek as well as the the canal. Yes. It is. So the contemporary exhibit we have up right now is called Booking Utopias Along the Canal. And it's really looking at, you know, what's made this canal neighborhood great and sort of what the detriments have been over time. So you have right. everything from, uh, you know, gentrification to life as an artist and how important that's been for uh, people's, you know, commitment to the community. And it's really, it's a lovely show. So, and this, uh, this piece right here is all sound objects from the blinds. Um We will certainly be posting this uh, on all social media. Uh, with, uh, am I allowed to take photos? Yes. Okay, great. Absolutely. So, um, so I moved to New York in 1983, and I was in an art gallery. And you moved too far slow from 93. No, I was living on the Upper East Side, but uh. then I, um, I started dating my now husband, and uh, he was living in Park Slope, who was a musician, drummer, and uh, we met because he was also working in the same art gallery that I was at, okay. and I ended up moving out to Park Slope in 1984, so I've been here uh, ever since. So tell us a little bit uh, about your Park Slope history over that time. Well, you know, it's a great neighborhood. Um, I love that it, it, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Boston because it's so manageable and so beautiful architecturally and has all of the best elements in the small town and none of the worst elements. Right. <laughs> I like to say with Brooklyn that you, you basically can get everything you need uh, that you could get in Manhattan, but with a little bit of a chiller vibe. Yeah. Maybe not so much in 1984, but right, yeah. it was still... To come here after having grown up in, uh, you know, a relatively, you know, suburb or rural town. You know, <laughs> my town had like 5,000 people in it. It was only a half hour west of Boston, but there was nothing to do. <laughs> and so to be living in New York and even to be in Brooklyn, you know, I had access to the park and access to the train and to get to go anywhere. And, um, you know, I continued working in the arts and then I had, and we had a couple of kids and working for a little while and got very involved in the PTA as, you know, people who are fortunate enough to have the ability to do that can do. And it made me really uh, understand how P- 
people can change their neighborhoods and how you can really have an impact on your community. And that was great. And when my kids were in middle school, I actually met the board of directors here at the house because I couldn't understand what was going on in the park. It was quite run down at that point. You know, the neighborhood had gone through a pretty tough time in the late 1970s. And Fifth Avenue hadn't gone through the gentrification that we see here today at that point. And, um, you know, the, the moms used to call it the needle part or the glass part. Oh, right, yeah. And, uh, and so I asked, you know, what was going on and talked a little bit about, I'd done some community organizing in the arts and, and, and they hired me. <laughs> and that was in 2004 and I've been here ever since. And it's been an amazing opportunity to really work with the city, work with the neighborhood and see the, the space evolve. And something that uh, Mike and I talk a lot about is that the city can sometimes be a little short-sighted when it comes to honoring their history, which is crazy to say because, you know, especially like looking at where we are now, but like it, it's been a, a, um, a lot of hard work to get something like this to the people of the city of New York. And there's still a lot of, uh, you know, I'm sure Mike could like more than me go off a list and, and say this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen. So it's really spectacular that, uh, over the last 19 years, you've been able to uh, help, you know, get this, uh, this, get get the the people of not only Brooklyn but whoever comes through here a little bit more educated on. Well, we've had a lot of really good partners, and I was preceded by a really dedicated group of community members, uh, you know, that started advocating for the house to become. Um, a public history site as early as 1987. Okay. Uh, Joe Ferris was an assembly member, and uh, you know a number of other folks were involved with parts at the time that the Historic House Trust was founded. And so, uh, like the old Stone House, there are 23 other sites in New York City parks that also have this great, deep New York City history. And um, unlike the rest of them, we are not a New York City landmark, but we're a oh. And um, and, and the, is, uh, you, uh, what part is, is the National Register on the National Register? So that's because we're a state, uh, we're a state landmark. And right. so our landmarking at the state level was really looking at the 1930s era, uh, the Moses era. Right. And, and so, yeah, let's go ahead and get into that. Um, yeah. So I think that the interesting thing about the Moses era is that he was such a it was such an impactful city planner. You know, New York would not be the city that we know today without it. And there, to you know, to his credit, the old Stone House is a wonderful building. This room has amazing acoustics. Um, in terms of a programmatic space, nobody else in our colleague group has anything like it. Um, but he was not a preservationist, and uh, you know, he was really interested in creating recreation that kept people in the city who didn't have cars and couldn't drive out to the beach. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, this push-pull between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs is something that I think we still see today uh, between those two very disparate philosophies. And, and the wonderful thing about Park Slope is that it really is uh, about, you know, livable communities, walkable communities, low communities, and we've certainly benefited from many of the... Um, the trade-offs that we've had where all of the high development is happening down on 4th Avenue, but the side streets have been protected on many blocks. Um, but it also creates some issues in terms of developing new housing, and I think we are in a very extreme housing crisis right now. 
And one of the interesting things about the park is that it was really created because it was an open recreation space for the housing that was developed in the 1910s, uh, 20s, 30s for everyone that was working right. in the Gowanus. And, uh, you know, I think we've reached a point where we need to see more of that as well, where there's housing that can actually uh, house working people that are in New York City. Right, because you're not going to be able to depend on, you know, I think right now the affluent pay 50% or more of New York City taxes. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't seem like a trend that, that can sustain proper money coming in, proper revenue coming in for the city. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm just thinking about, um, yeah, it's just thinking about the industrial part, similar to Dumbo. Mm -hmm. Like, there was at some point nobody would have ever thought of anybody living anywhere near there. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that that's, um, you know, the rezoning is really focused on creating a mixed-use community, but, you know, we hope the IBZ really remains a strong industrial zone and that business continues to exist in New York. So uh, we'll see how it evolves. I think it's very, um, you know, the powerhouse is going to be developing, it's going to make arts fabrication site, and there are just different businesses are now coming up in, in the in the current rezoned area and how that evolves over time is going to you know to miss, we'll see how it goes right exactly. I think the most important thing is trying to create uh, change in a way that includes the uh, the NYCHA houses and maintains that neighborhood the neighborhood resources that people need to be able to live in the community that are not you know living in luxury housing and I think that's you know, I, I have so many different opinions about um, just public housing and, and the way that it's basically been executed in New York City mm -hmm. that, you know, on surface, it seems like, like a very high moral thing to provide, but it's the execution that just, you know, and, and I, we're really talking about, I guess, post-war here with, with the creation of the housing authority. Mm -hmm. um, I, it, it just, it seems to be a very dystopian way that that people live in those places. And and you do hope that, you know, there could be, and, and there was, um, I forget exactly uh, what block it's in between, but it's in Harlem on 112th Street. Mm -hmm. And there was a pre-war, there were pre-war buildings that probably have now gotten turned into private apartments, but they moved the, everybody in to this new development, these new public developments that are substantially nicer apartment buildings. And so you hope you can see something like that uh, without these just giant brick 20-story buildings that, that don't necessarily just, I don't think it, personally, I don't think it, it seems, like it seems like same thing in some fashion with uh, Stuyvesant and, and Parkchester, that there are these giant brick community super blocks, as they like to call them, uh, that, that separate yourself from the city blocks that we are currently in between. Personally, that's just not, uh, there's something very, very uh, not New York or not just urbanist at all about it. I think people appreciate a human scale where you can know your neighbors, and, you know, in a, large, in a larger sense. Right. That, uh, you know, that, that the other half of your building is not completely unknown to you because it's so large and high. And right. Exactly. Um, 
But yeah, it's, I think we're in a time of tremendous change in New York City. Not that we haven't always been. Right. It's, but, this place uh, is always under construction. Yeah. But I do think that um, that the you know the economic impact of the pandemic and the changes that will occur in terms of the workplace are going to be um, substantial. And you know maybe we'll finally see Midtown become a residential community, and, and you know that will lead to other things. Mm-hmm. But um, well, you know. It's partially, uh, if you get enough into Hell's Kitchen, it certainly is. Absolutely. And one of the beautiful things about Hell's Kitchen, where, where I'm from, uh, since 1998 actually, is that the, the, uh, there is zoning laws, and you're not allowed to build above a certain height. And so, and, and I'm sure that's the case here, where you keep those views. So in, Mid- in Midtown Manhattan, at least you know, on the west side in Hell's Kitchen, you can be on one of those rooftops, and it's basically like you're in a basin of the city, you know, because they're building on 11th, they're building 57th Street, they're building 42nd Street. Yeah, at least you can keep, you know, some sort of sense of the skyline, whereas, you know, I mean, luckily in, in Parslope it's okay, but you look towards uh, downtown Manhattan, downtown Brooklyn, excuse me, and it used to just be the one handsome place. And now you can hardly even see one hand in place, really. It sure thanks a lot. And you know, the lovely thing about being here is that you still have this uh, sense of 19th century Brooklyn. Right. Certainly here at the house, um, because the gardens are so beautiful and we're really surrounded by uh, nature um, in our in our little three and a half acre space. And to look out the windows, we are still we're still seeing the low brownstone community that. Uh, would have been here uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, and uh, there's something very, um, just imagining all those Victorian dresses walking around, and, and it's like when you're walking through uh, a lot of Brooklyn, um, you kind of do still get that sense of, of the history, even if like some, like we talked about, New York City could still do a better job yeah. one way or another. Well, I think, you know, Brooklyn, Brooklyn's baseball history is so great, you know, the, the implementation of ladies' days, being able to drink beer and watch baseball at the same time. Right, and even even uh, having a ball game on Sundays yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah, and so there was a certain, you know, equity that came out of baseball in Brooklyn and um, the sort of rise of leisure and, uh, you know, support for the the working class and the rise of industrialization, you know, there's there's men and women can come together in a public place and enjoy a, a daytime entertainment together in a way that wasn't possible uh, before baseball really started to develop in Brooklyn. And, I mean, they always like to say, and it's certainly a space thing, especially because the Manhattan teams eventually had to go to Hoboken to yeah. play. But uh, I believe it was something like Manhattan had, like, 25 teams and Brooklyn had, like, 80. It was it was something of that nature, and of course the Atlantic, the Excel dealers, those became uh, some of the more famous ones, especially the Atlantics, who ended up beating the undefeated Cincinnati Red Stockings at the Capitoline grounds. Um, sometimes I, I forget how much I, I know about all this stuff, but I still don't know enough. Uh, it it yeah, and and I, I was just reading about Charlie Evans, and I guess it's we we'd uh, be remiss if we didn't bring him up on this podcast, and we actually had. John G. Zinn, who's a biographer of uh, Charlie Evans, on the podcast recently, and um, I've I, I kind of lost my train of thought about it, but 
just thinking about the way he was he was looking at Brooklyn and, and looking at keeping the team. I think specifically, like, there was, there was a fork in the road, like we were talking at, at some point, where they might have gone to Baltimore, and they might not have even existed because they were doing so poorly, where the league wanted to get rid of them. But because of all these different votes, all these different mom- moments that Evans was able to to you know bounce back from adversity and, and have resiliency, Brooklyn baseball was kept for at least half an, another half of a century. His own battle of Brooklyn. Right, exactly. <laughs> His own battle of Brooklyn. Well said. And it's it's funny, you know, we were talking a little bit more in depth about the way Robert Moses is viewed in this city. I said it's a very nuanced conversation. You said eh, it's not nuanced. It's a love hate relationship. So. Let's let's talk a little bit about Robert Moses, and 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 I think it's that love hate. You know, he pres- he was able to get this preserved. However, well, under great stress, right. I have to say that um, you know the reason the building was built the way that it is uh, was because of a man named Charles Higgins, who was an early Brooklyn industrialist, um, Irish had a the Higgins Ink manufacturing plant. If you're familiar with the neighborhood at all, there's a a blue home on 9th Street, and it has cupola on the top, and behind that is a brick building that was the ink factory, and artists still use Higgins Ink today. Um, but Higgins really recognized um, the importance of the battle as a, you know, a statement about resilience in uh, America, and as early as 1911 was advocating for the battle to be moralized. And, um, and it was that memory of that push on the part of the community that essentially pushed at Moses to get him to organize the WPA gig to bring up the stones from the original building and build a building that looked like the 1699 farmhouse. Right. Um, left to his own devices, I'm not sure that would have happened. Right. That's and, right, exactly. And also, you know, built very much in a Moses fashion, you know. Smack dab in the center of the three and a half acres, everything completely squared, 80 pin oaks uh, ringing the park, so they all die at the same time. You know, so, so they're, they're, yeah, so they're, he, he was just a visionary and so tenacious and was able to push through all of this public recreation that we still enjoy to this day. I mean, New York City pools, Sunset Park Pool is, you know, amazing mm-hmm. spaces. Um, Henry Epson Parkway. Yeah, exactly. But then also, you know, dividing the Bronx and right. the West Side and, you know, the things that took, that we're still recovering from in terms of community. And, and uh, you know, they talk about Third uh, Avenue used mm-hmm. to be a wide thoroughfare. They, they incorporated, I think, a little bit of the highway into what was elevated train, but the elevated train, I don't think uh, blocked as much sunlight out as, and and now you know because of that it's basically very industrial over there as you're sloping as you're starting your your slope up to the the park in Greenwood Cemetery, whether it be Park Slope or, or Sunset Park, um, but but that you know he he didn't devastate it as much as uh, Bronx got devastated with the way he, like, it just seems like he just took a pen and went right smack across the middle of the borough. Uh, and he, he was able to weave through it, but there's still a lot of things lost because, you know, especially uh, because of that, um, that part uh, leading up to the promise. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what neighborhood. That, that's technically Brooklyn Heights. just Brooklyn Heights. Uh, right, exactly. 
Exactly. Um, you know, and, and I do sometimes think while I'm traveling when there's no traffic, oh, this is great. I, I'm just, I, can, I can travel, uh, uh, you know, I was a Lyft driver. I, I could travel from Newark all the way to Yonkers in 40 minutes in the middle of the night. Like there was a sense of, uh, it's pretty remarkable when there is no traffic, how quickly you can get around both the city as well as the surrounding areas. But, excuse me, but there was a lot lost. Um, but it was looking forward, you know, it was the rise of, you know, cars and mobility and, um, you know, being able to go to the suburbs and create a new life that was not necessarily an urban life. So, you know, it's, it's hard. History is, is so fascinating, but you can't look at it through the lens of your present. You have to right. look at it at the point in time where it was happening. Right. Um, so that you're actually assessing it in, a, in an appropriate way, I guess. Well, and, and you also have to remember that thought process. It, it evolves, sometimes even devolves, but and sometimes happening all at the same time. I would like the thing that I keep bringing up is the fact that had they had any foresight, uh, then they would have incorporated the Evansville facade into the design for the apartment building. But that was something that they started really doing in the 90s. Yeah. when it came to preserving uh, a building uh, that, you know, like most, I always think of the factories mostly, you know, now that people, a lot of people live in. Uh, but it's, it's just remarkable when you see photos and the brick is just scattered all over the place. Nobody, picked, you know, a piece of that brick, if somebody had thought to pick it up, it's probably worth a lot on eBay or, or in, at Christie's. It's true. So many people have just never gotten over that move to L.A. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're uh, the Mets are facing the Giants and stuff that we always talk about. It's because of that feeling that they slided an entire community of, of just a single community of people that always had a chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Giants weren't doing as well. Um, they, uh, they, they didn't have that many people coming. Uh, but what seemed to have kept people invested in the Giants on this side of the country was Willie Mays. That, that seems, because we, we come across a lot of people that didn't become Yankee fans, didn't become Met fans, just seemed to keep following the Giants. And you don't find that as much when it comes to the Los Angeles Dodgers, who do feel like a, a rather spiffed up Darabont bump, if you will. Um, but, but, uh, we're going in so many different directions. Uh, just to bring it back, I, I, I'm curious about who J.J. Byrne is, the, the person who's the playground uh, standout. J.J. Byrne was the borough president in Brooklyn in the early 1930s, and he passed away. And so the park is named after him. Um, although he, he, <laughs> he wasn't necessarily in favor of having a park here. He was no. uh, really more in favor of it going to Brooklyn Polytechnic. So he's perhaps not the greatest politician ever, right. but um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but at least all kinds of really great names. So right, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's it's fantastic. So you're just having been here since 1983. You're coming up on on a uh, if I can do my my history right, a 40 year anniversary yeah. in Park Slope. It might be my history and my math. Um, that. What, what are some of the other things that, that you've really appreciated taking in on a daily basis about both Park Slope and Brooklyn? 
walking everywhere. You know, I love this welcome community. I love Prospect Park. I love that I can walk a block to my job. That's amazing. Um, you know, just being very involved in civic life. You know, people can have a tremendous impact on schools, on hospitals, on parks. And it's not necessarily about money. It's about commitment and not wanting to take no for an answer. Right. And I've also you know, feel like I have a connection to um, the city and city agencies that I, I, you know, seems surprising to me in such a large city. You know, these are people who are really dedicated to public service. Right. And to see that is really wonderful. And, um, you know, my own kids are, you know, in the arts and in public health, and for them to have those opportunities to have grown up in a place where they can see those opportunities for themselves, um, you know, in so many variations was really great and and I've come to know thousands of people over the years of all ages and when I started working here in the park the kids that were playing in the playground at that point are now in college and that's kind of an amazing thing, you know, to run into somebody and to see that five-year-old in an adult. Right, you know, right. They're still recognizable. And, um, even if they have a beard now. Even if they have a beard. <laughs> and, you know, this opportunity to really create a, a community, you know, this, this feeling of a town square and to bring together all of these cultural organizations and community groups and create space right. for these things to happen. Like, to have that privilege of doing that work is really amazing. Like to be able to say, yes, we have space and time. Please come. Right. Do this here. Uh, it's just really a gift. Well, we greatly appreciate it, and I'm, I'm going to have to come back another day when I can take it in uh, just as a pedestrian. Um, so what we always like to say at the end is a shameless plug. So tell everybody, one, where they can find you, and two, uh, once more about the old stone house in Washington Park and what you guys are doing there. Sure. Well, you can find everything to know about the old stone house in Washington Park at theoldstonehouse.org uh, or on Insta, B-K-L-Y-N. Uh, our amazing program director, Casey Schweiger, does a great job on all of our social media. Um, we have a very active education program that's run by Maggie Weber. Uh, before the pandemic, we were seeing about 7,000 school kids over the course of the year. Um, and now that we're getting into the nice, warm spring weather, I hope, right. there's lots of outdoor programming coming up. Uh, Earth Day this Saturday, a pop-up artisan bazaar the next weekend, our semi-annual Brooklyn Bike Jumble, which is a fantastic bike flea market uh, coming up, and then over the summer, outdoor movies and theater, and lots of really great things to do. Well, I'm pretty sure that we went through like four different seasons just in the time <laughs> that we were on the podcast. I, I mean, think so. We heard a, a, a lot of rain. Flags were flapping all over the place. I think there was a little hail in there. There might have been a little hail. So all of a sudden, like, you could really feel the wind through this stone. Yes. <laughs> so, Kim Mayer, thank you so much for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We greatly appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Sam. Thank you so much for coming out. And thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Catch us next time. Take care.